Imagine you're Jesus' closest friends on Saturday. The time between the crucifixion and the resurrection. It felt like everything had been lost. Everything they put their trust in, everything they worked for, was lost. They didn't even go to Jesus' burial. Only the women turned up. My inkling is if uh, they were men just like men today, they probably felt so unmanly they didn't feel worthy to be there. They didn't even stand up for Jesus at his time of greatest need. Their leader had been killed, their friend. And in his moment of greatest need, they all abandoned him. All of them. Not only was the cause lost, but what they thought they'd achieved personally in their characters probably seemed like it was lost too. Those years of building up, being disciples, being good disciples, you know, casting out demons, healing the sick, and this happens. They're probably questioning, wow, have I changed at all? Am I different than the day Jesus first called me? And Peter One of Jesus' closest friends, he was part of the inner circle of the inner circle, completely turned his back on him. Betrayal. Imagine your best friend, the one you've gone through thick and thin with, the one you've traveled with, the one you've eaten hundreds of meals with, you've lived together for three years, the one who said, I've always got your back. In fact, if it came to it, I would die for you. And the moment comes where you get arrested on false charges, you go to court, they ask someone to testify for you, and he says, I don't even know him. I don't even know him. He completely stabbed him in the back. Peter must have been absolutely inconsolable on Saturday. Can you imagine? That feeling of failure that he must have felt. Judas committed suicide because of the regret. But he wasn't the only one that betrayed Jesus. All of them did, it says. He gave him up, but the others abandoned him. Judas committed a sin of of commission. He did the wrong thing. All the others committed a sin of omission. They failed to do the right thing. And if you think about funerals, the things that people most regret are the sins of omission, right? Ah, oh, I wish I would have told him I loved him more. I wish I would have spent more time with her. If only could I have that one more day to tell him what, how I really felt. Those are those sins of omission, the sins we, we uh, didn't do what we should have done. So think about Peter. I think there must have been two particular moments that were tormenting him more than any others. The first is what we see in Luke 22, 33 and 34. The moment where Jesus predicts that Peter's going to betray him. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to die. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock won't crow today until you deny me three times that you even know me. That's running through his mind. And there's another moment running through his mind. The moment where he actually does betray Jesus. And we read this in John 18, 16 to 18. 
And then verses 25 and 27. Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you're not one of his disciples as well, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming warming himself. This is verse 25. So they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it saying, I'm not. And one of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the cock crowed. And in Luke 22, we get an added detail. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the cock crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter knew on Saturday that he was a failure. And all the others knew it too. But not only were they thinking probably that they were a failure, it also seemed like God was a failure on Saturday. How could Jesus die? How could the Messiah, the Son of God, the Chosen One, die? It must have seemed like God had failed. And they're in this very unsure place. They're in that in-between time. The time when they have no idea what God is doing. Right? We can, you can just kind of take that off. God's put them in a position where they're forced to either trust him completely or abandon hope altogether. Because they have no idea what's, what God is doing. And I call that the Saturday experience. The time between the horror of the crucifixion and the joy of the resurrection. That time in the middle where God's plan is just a complete mystery and you have no idea what he's up to. And we read at the end of that passage that it was a Sabbath day. It was a high Sabbath day. The day when they're commanded to rest and acknowledge their lack of control. So they're forced to not try and make things right, but just rest. Even if they wanted to fix things somehow, they couldn't on that day. It was completely out of their hands. They're powerless. And they're in this place where they have to wrestle. And I can imagine them wrestling with these questions. These tough questions swirling around in their minds. Who was this man? Was he the one or were we just fooled? Like all those other fake messiahs that have come. Are we wrong? What, what do we do now? And they seem to be left alone with those haunting questions. But on the other hand, they were used to questions. Jesus was a man of questions. Jesus was a man of deep questions. 
And I just want to read. Uh, in Jesus' words, he asks uh, around 140 questions. And I just want to read a third of them. And I just want you to listen. It's incredible how penetrating Jesus' questions are. Why are you so afraid? Do you believe I'm able to do this? Why did you doubt? Do you still not understand? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do you say that I am? What good will it be for man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? How long shall I put up with you? What is it you want? What do you want me to do for you? What do you think? Have you never read in the scriptures? Why are you trying to trap me? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you thinking these things? Do you still have no faith? What is your name? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Do you still not understand? Do you see anything? What were you arguing about on the road? Why do you call me good? What do you want me to do for you? Are you asleep? Why were you searching for me? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Where is your faith? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why are you sleeping? What do you want? Will you give me a drink? Do you want to get well? Does this offend you? You don't want to leave also, do you? Have I not chosen you? Why are you trying to kill me? Why are my words not clear to you? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Do you believe this? Do you understand what I've done for you? Don't you know me even after I've been among you such a long time? Who is it you want? Is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Why question me? If I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Do you love me? Jesus was a man of questions. Now I read those, and I mean, just letting those wash over me is powerful. Jesus penetrated people's hearts with questions. 
Jesus wants us to wrestle with the questions. By asking the questions, he makes us search our own hearts and realize the answers for ourselves. You have to fight for it. You have to wrestle with the question. And that was his form of teaching. It's excellent teaching. You come to the realization yourself, and it sticks with you much more that way. It's called the Socratic method. It's the way that Socrates taught as well. That was Jesus' way of teaching. He didn't teach by spoon-feeding, easy, understandable, uh, comfortable answers. He taught by cutting to the heart with difficult, uncomfortable questions. I think he does that because life isn't so simple, like the simple answers that we want. Jesus' job wasn't just to give us neat little answers to satisfy us. In fact, if you read all of the 183 questions that people ask Jesus, he only ever answers three directly. 183 questions he's asked, he only answers three directly. The rest, the, the rest he answers in the form of a question, like the ones we just read, or he answers in the form of a parable. God puts us in that place where we need to wrestle with the questions so that we're forced to turn to him, to have relationship with him, to really rely on him. Because that's part of relationship, right? A relationship, a real conversation with another friend isn't just a simple Q&A. Just getting your piece of information, thank you very much, I'm leaving. God isn't Siri, if you, anyone who's got an iPhone, right? If it was like that, if God just, you know, God, uh, what should I do? Option A, thank you, God. I'll move on. That doesn't force us to really seek relationship with him. And yet, we expect it to be like that most of the time. That's what the disciples expected, too. They expected clear, direct answers. That's why, you know, they ask a question, Jesus gives a parable, and then they ask him again, well, what did that mean? And then they ask him again. And they never get it because they're expecting those, you know, uh, easy answers. And a lot of the people that originally were following Jesus left him because of that. They couldn't deal with that. They wanted answers, and Jesus just wouldn't give them. The disciples stuck it out, though, right? But after the crucifixion, they had to be left wondering as well why their biggest questions didn't seem to be answered. Even Jesus had to wrestle with questions that didn't seem to quite be answered from God. He wrestles in the garden. He wrestles on the cross. What sustains us through the Saturday experience? What can sustain us when we're looking for those answers to those questions, when we're looking for peace? What gives us peace on Saturday? 
um, using a bit of help from uh, Tim Keller here, who did a sermon on, on, on where to find peace. But how do we find peace? Well, when you're looking for different wi- ways to find peace, and you look among the, the religions and the philosophies of the world, they'll focus on relaxation techniques, right? They focus on a certain method that if you follow this method, you will, you know, you'll get a sense of peace. So they'll tell you the way to get peace is to stop thinking about all your problems, stop worrying about all your problems, and just put them out of your mind. Go get a massage. Learn this breathing technique, and it'll calm you down, and you can get your mind off all all the worries. Release the tension. Counselors will tell you, Go to your happy place. Happy Gilmore will tell you that too. Go to your happy place. Put it out of your mind. Different forms of new age kind of spiritualism will tell you, well, go on this trip. Escape the city. Escape the hustle and bustle of modern life and go out to the countryside or go to India or go to Peru and and find a shaman and go through, you know, this, this um, you know, rustic way of life, and, and it's going to put out of your mind all the problems of your modern life. Buddhism will tell you it's just an illusion. So you have to meditate and kind of know that through meditation, that it's all an illusion. If you go to a relaxation spa, they're telling you, are you stressed? Do you want some peace? Come get your mind off things. Come have a massage. Come soak in, in, the, in the hot tub. Let the world just melt away, right? And we want that sometimes. <laughs> but why do you think all the spas have little Buddhas in them? Because it's tied up with that same philosophy. It's all about getting your mind off of that. It's all an illusion. But Christianity, listen to this. Christianity is the only one that will tell you the way to get peace is not to stop thinking, it's to think more. The Bible tells you the way to get peace is to not, uh, not to think less, but to think more about what's true. To think more and to focus your mind on the truth of God. If you're a Christian in hard times... Don't think less about what you believe. Think more about what you believe. What we need on Saturday is doctrine. Proper belief about who God is and what he's promised. And that is the source of our peace. We turn to God's truth. Let's talk first about the promises. For the disciples to have peace on Saturday, they needed to think about God's word, especially what God's word in the flesh had told them. The prophets had predicted everything about Jesus. That was their written scripture. But Jesus had also predicted everything that was going to happen. He knew and he prophesied to them over and over again he was going to be raised on the third day, right? He said it time and time again. And it was something they couldn't have missed. It's not like they didn't remember it. Because the Pharisees were very well aware of it. If you read in, 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 uh, in Matthew, the reason the Pharisees put the, the guards outside the tomb was because they remembered that prophecy. 
and they were afraid the disciples were going to steal the body and pretend like he'd raised again from the dead. So the disciples must have remembered as well. They just didn't believe it would actually happen. <laughs> Neither did the Pharisees. The, pro- the, the disciples on Saturday needed to remember Jesus' promises. Even though maybe at the time they didn't quite make sense. When we're in our Saturday time, in our Saturday experience, we need to remember and lean on the things that Jesus has promised us. His prophetic word. His prophetic word in the scripture. The prophetic word of his spirit speaking to our hearts. We've got the written word just like they did. And we have God's spirit speaking to us personally. Even through other people. And in our Saturday experience, we have to remember those promises. We have to hold on to those promises. I have to remember who God says I am when I'm going through my wrestling with questions. I have to remember what God has said to us. We have to remember what God has said to us. But not only are God's promises a source of peace, but if we'd only think about, think more, and think more clearly in that time about who God is, will have a tremendous source of peace. Why is that? Think about who God is. God is the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. He holds time in his hands. He knows the beginning from the end. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He knew you from before you were in your mother's womb. God is all-powerful, eternal, all-knowing, and he says he not only loves but he is love. When you put all those truths about God together, along with the promises he's made, such as all things together work, all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his pur- purposes. And you put that together with the, those truths about God, what possible reason could there be to be afraid? What possible reason could there be to not trust him? On Saturday, we have to think more about what we actually believe. The reason we lose our peace is not because we're thinking too much. It's because we're thinking too little about who God is. But once we know those things... We have to actively trust him. That's what faith is. Faith is trust. It's trusting that God's promises are true on the basis of who he is, which he's proven by what he's done. So faith is trusting God, okay? It's not just A blind faith for no reason. That's not the faith of the Bible. The faith of the Bible is on the basis of God's character. That's how we know that our faith is worth having. And we know God's character by what he's done. 
what he's done proves to us who he is and that what he's promised is worth trusting. Does that make sense? I think the lights being off makes you sleep a little bit more. (laughs) Are you with me? Yeah? Okay, thank you. I never do that. (laughs) So not only is my knowledge about God being all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving, not only is that just an intellectual uh, uh, assent that I can give to that, it's not just an intellectual fact that I know, but it's something I can absolutely put my trust in because of what God's done. God doesn't just say, trust me. He says, trust me because this is who I am. The disciples don't say, just believe. They say, believe because Jesus rose from the dead. This is what he's done. And I know he can, we can know that he's good because of what he did today, 2,000 years ago. That's how I can know that God is a God I can trust. That his promises are worth putting my trust in because he was willing to do that. He was willing to die for me, to die for you. And we also know that God has the power to fulfill his promises because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again on Sunday. So I know who he is. It's proven to me by his character. Therefore, I can trust him absolutely. Think about it. How do you get all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, proven by what he's done, he was willing to die for you on the cross, and then you're worried. You're afraid. That doesn't add up. The only logical response is to trust him. It's not that that's the best response. It's the only one that makes sense. And that's what the disciples needed. They needed to think more about who the God they were serving actually was. And that's the kind of knowledge that Jesus had. He knew the word. He knew what was supposed to happen. And those promises strengthened him to carry through with the, with the mission. To trust his father even when he felt most abandoned. That's what we need on our Saturday experience. So we're talking about what can sustain us through Saturday. And we talked about uh, doctrine thinking more about who God is and what he's promised. But that isn't the whole picture. It's not only our faith that sustains us on Saturday. For the disciples, we can see there was another force at work sustaining them through that day and through their questions. Jesus had prayed. Jesus was praying. He knew what was going to happen to them. 
He knew that they were going to desert him. He predicted it. But he said, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. I've prayed specifically for you that your faith would not fail. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Peter said, uh, Jesus says, Simon, his name was Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus has prayed not only for Peter, but Jesus intercedes for us. So in Hebrews 7.25, it says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is always continually before God interceding for us, praying for you and me, that our faith wouldn't fail. It's not only our strength carrying us through. Jesus is behind the scenes praying for us, sustaining us. If this were a cheesy sermon, I could read footprints. <laughs> but Jesus is behind us, praying for us. You all know the footprints poem, of course, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is a good poem, but yeah. We're not alone in our times of need and trouble. That's what this shows us. Jesus is right there with us, praying for us, interceding for us. And his prayers strengthen us and carry us through. We have to know in that moment we're not alone. You can take that down. Thanks. So just a a recap. The disciples on Saturday, they go through that time of God's seeming silence his seeming failure, his seeming distance. All seems lost. They're fearful. fearful. They themselves feel like failures. They're even physically in danger. God seems like a failure to them. And there's so many questions that that they're wrestling with. And we find ourselves in that place so many times. Don't we? When God feels far away, when it feels like we've failed, everything that we've been working towards for God fails. And it's like, God, what are you doing? How do we get peace on Saturday? We reflect on God's truth. We think on him, on who he is, on what he's done, on what he's promised to do. And then we trust in him because it's the only logical thing to do. It's the only thing to make sense, that that makes sense. If God is who he says he is and he says he's for me, what could be against me? What could I possibly be afraid of legitimately? Nothing. 
we actively trust in him. And we also draw strength from Jesus' prayers, knowing that we're not alone and that he'll bring us through. Now I'm heading towards a close here. There's just a little bit more to apply. So I'm telling us that's what we need to do on Saturday. But the amazing thing is, Jesus is with us even when we don't do that. Even when we can't find the strength to do that. If you think about it, the disciples really did fail. They did have a reason to feel bad on Saturday. They really did screw up. (laughs) It wasn't imagined. It wasn't a false guilt complex. It wasn't just low self-esteem. They really messed up. They really did betray their friend and leave him for dead. It was real. And most of the time, we don't have the strength that we need. But when Jesus rises again and he comes and he visits them, does he condemn them? Does Jesus condemn us? Not when we turn to him. I want us to think about Peter again. When Jesus returns, you would think he'd be out to get Peter. He'd be out to judge Peter, to smite him, right? Didn't he say one time there were going to be people that would come and say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus would say, I never knew you? Well, Peter had said, I never knew him. Wouldn't it have been just? Wouldn't it have been perfectly okay for Jesus to say, Peter, I don't, I don't know you. Get away from me, you evildoer. But that's not what he does. This is the amazing thing. He wasn't out to get him. No, Jesus knew his frailty. Jesus knew Peter's weakness. He knew what he was going to do. And he'd prayed for him, hadn't he? He'd already prayed for him. He wasn't surprised by that. And he said, somehow this would all work together for good. Somehow Peter would be able to come out of this experience and encourage others. Jesus was going to take that utmost moment of failure, Peter's biggest living regret, and turn it into an utmost victory. So we read in John 21.4, Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's risen on the third day. And John tells us about an appearance that Jesus, the the last appearance that John records of the resurrected Jesus to the disciples. And it says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. I'm going to skip to verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment because he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. So Jesus comes again, and he shows himself to the disciples, and he comes as a friend. He comes right back to the very first place that he calls them from. The place where Jesus called the disciples originally, a lot of them, 
was from fishing. And what's Peter's response? You would think, most of us probably, I would probably kind of act like I wasn't there. You know, just turn my back and, you know, carry on fishing. What's Jesus going to think of me? (laughs) But Peter doesn't do that. In fact, that's a proud response. Peter isn't proud. He throws himself into the water and tries to get to Jesus as quick as he can. Peter allows himself to be seen. He doesn't hide from Jesus. He makes himself vulnerable before Jesus. For Peter to just hide away would have been proud <laughs> because he's, he would have been uh, not accepting Jesus' forgiveness. And Jesus appeared to them, and this wasn't the first time he'd appeared to them, but there was still a deeper work to be done in Peter's heart. So let's read from verse 9. Verses 9 to 14. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. I'll skip to 12. Jesus said, come, have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Did you notice something there? What kind of fire is it? Charcoal fire. It's a very specific word. In fact, it's a word that's only used twice in the entire Bible. Once, in John 18, what kind of fire was it that Peter warmed himself around in the moment of his betrayal? A charcoal fire. Jesus is taking him back to Peter's lowest point, his utmost moment of betrayal. This was a moment Jesus was planning for a deeper work in Peter's heart. And he takes him back to that fire. We read from uh, verse 15. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him for the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, 
You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus goes right back, full circle, to the first moment when he encounters Peter. When he saw him fishing and said, follow me. And this young, naive Peter jumps up and follows him. Not knowing what was down the road. And Jesus takes him back to that. He takes him back to that moment of absolute betrayal. And he redeems it. He restores him. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus gives Peter three times to declare his love for him again. Peter gone back to fishing. Maybe that was the result of, what do we do now? The cause is lost. Jesus is dead. What can we do? Well, we'll go back fishing. And Jesus encounters him right back at that same place. As if to say, Peter, these last three years haven't been worthless. All that work you did with me, all the stuff I was doing in your heart, it wasn't worthless. He restores him again, and he says, follow me. And from that moment on, Peter doesn't deny Jesus again. In fact, he's got, you see him after Pentecost with an incredible boldness, declaring Jesus in front of thousands. And there's a little hint there that John gives us about what kind of death Peter died. And tradition has it that Peter was crucified. He didn't count himself worthy to be crucified as Jesus was. He asked to be crucified upside down. Jesus takes us right back to that moment of our deepest failure. And he says, just like when Peter denied him and it says the Lord looked at Peter, Jesus says, I saw that. I was there when you did that. I was hurt by that. You betrayed me by that. I died for that. I died to redeem even that. Your worst moment. I have died for that. The Saturday experience gave Peter more fuel for the fire. It gave him that boldness to never deny Jesus again. And and Jesus said to him, I've prayed that your faith may not fail and that when you turn, when you return, you would strengthen your brothers. Jesus took that utmost failure and turned it around so that Peter could serve others, could minister to others. What more picture of what happens in a place like Batel. We come in broken. We come in as failures in a lot of ways. And Jesus turns that around so that we can encourage others from that. 
we can strengthen other people from that. And God takes what was once our worst failure, our worst trait, our, our, uh, our weakest spot, and he turns it to our strongest spot to help other people. I don't know about you, but that, that impacts me. That Jesus was there in my weakest moment. He saw it. He saw my betrayal. And instead of betraying me in return, he went to the cross. And he said, I died for that. And in fact, I'm going to take that and I'm going to turn it for good. Take that weakness and let me be strong for you. And now go serve other people with that. That's what the church is about. And Peter is a model for the church. Jesus said, on this rock, I'll build my church on Peter. And so Peter, out of that weakness, serving other people, that's the church. That's the rock that the church is built on. That's what we're doing here. We may live in the Saturday time a lot of times, You might feel like everything's failed us. God, the plan, ourselves. And all we're left with is the questions. I'm just recapping here. This is, this, we're finishing. All we're left with is the questions. But Jesus wants us to cherish the questions. Because those That's the tool that he uses to deepen our relationship with him. And on Saturday, when we're wrestling with those questions, think. Don't switch your brain off. Switch it on to the truth of God. Put your mind on who God is, on what he's promised. And when you add two and two together, There's only one outcome. There's only one response. We have to trust it. That's the only logical thing to do. It's the only thing to make sense, that makes sense. And more than that, we can know that Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is interceding for us. And if we run to him, even in our moment of deepest failure, he turns it to a victory. And he turns it to something that you can use to minister to other people, to help other people. Jesus is going to take your greatest area of brokenness and use it to minister to other people. If we run to him, that's what he does for us. So, on Saturday... We need to remember what Jesus did on Friday and trust him for what he's going to do on Sunday.